This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, who you can find on Jason LK on Twitter. Now, I'm super excited for our guest today. So joining me, I'm delighted to welcome Vili Itchev to the hot seat. Now, Vili is a partner at August Capital and prior to joining August, Vili was a member of the leadership teams at Box and LifeLock. And before that, Vili was a VP at Salesforce where he led the strategy and acquisitions team and he was directly responsible for over 30 investments in some incredible companies including the likes of HubSpot, Box, MuleSoft, just to name a few. I have to also say if you're enjoying the show then head over to sasta.com where you can find a whole raft of incredible SaaS resources and articles from Jason. However, it's now time for me to hand over to the main man, Vili Itchev, partner at August Capital. Good. Perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Vili, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Glad to be with you. Now, I'd love to start off by hearing how you made your way into the world of SaaS first, from operations and then to VC. What's your kind of origin story to, to partner August? Well, I, I started my career in investment banking. In the spring of 2008, I decided that I've had enough of that world and decided to join the corporate world. And that was right before the financial crisis hit. And I was able to join Hewlett Packard, which was one of my clients when I was uh, in investment banking. One of my other clients was Salesforce uh, when I was uh, in banking. And fortunately, in 2009, Salesforce decided that they wanted to uh, invest in and strengthen their strengthen their corporate development function and uh, build an investment and M&A practice. And uh, Johnson Morjai, who used to run Corp David Salesforce, whom I had known, uh, reached out to me. And, and that's really how I made the transition to SaaS. Uh, Salesforce at the time was a successful company, but a small fraction of what it is today. So it wasn't an obvious move at the time. SaaS was still relatively young. There were a few public success stories, but it wasn't that obvious. HP was on top of the world at the time. But but I I, I saw where the where the puck is going, and and I wanted to be part of software revolution that we have experienced over the last 10, 15 years. And, and the rest is history. I was at Salesforce for four years, had a brief experience at LifeLock and joined Box as, as uh, the head of strategy and core dev in 2014. And I'm intrigued there because you said about SaaS being uh, very early on in its life cycle and that it was, wasn't necessarily the easiest decision that we all think it would be today. So, so what was it then that made you believe in the inherent nature of SaaS being an extremely large industry going forward? The uh, democratization of software that SaaS was making possible was quite obvious. And, and I wasn't by any, I'm not even suggesting I was early in me seeing that. Not everybody had seen it, but you could clearly see the writing on the wall that the world of software is changing and the software will be delivered as a service and will be available to companies of all sizes. And, and that's really what appealed to me to be part of that revolution. I, I, I see this 20, 30-year-long marathon of, of the world transitioning to SaaS. You know, if I can state the obvious, even today, we have barely scratched the surface uh, in, in the world of SaaS. I would suggest 10 and 20% of all software today is SaaS in terms of spent. 
So we're still very early, but but it's it's an obvious transition, and I continue to be excited. And I think you know the next fifteen years are just going to be are going to be just as exciting as the last fifteen in in this world. Uh, I'm really intrigued there. Then you said about your time with the Salesforce and boxes of the world. So then, what were your big takeaways from working with these behemoth companies, and how have you applied those learnings to your transition into VC today? They're all very different. First of all, I think corporate development means very different things to different organizations. Uh, at some of the larger organizations, HP, Google, etc., uh, that, that is mostly an execution function, not a very strategic function. They execute on deals that are investigated or, or, or decided on by the business units. Uh, at smaller companies like Box, you're very much part of the strategy formation. You work extremely closely with the product teams, the sales team to understand uh, what type of conversations uh, they're having with customers. Uh, and so you're very much part of the, the strategy formation. What that leads to may be an acquisition, but it may lead to a partnership. It may lead to organic product development. You know, corp dev need not lead to a transaction. And that was my experience at Salesforce. That was my experience at Box. That is the work I really enjoyed the most. It is walking into a problem or thinking about the opportunities ahead and figuring out how you capitalize on them. And if it so happens that uh, an acquisition or an investment may help facilitate or accelerate that strategy, then that's all great. Uh, but it doesn't need to start that way. In fact, I would suggest companies get too attached to M&A-based strategies and, and forget how to build product. You know, my experience was always try to be very well balanced and, and, and try to decide what's the best thing for the company, not optimize for a transaction. And you stated before that you were responsible for more than 25 acquisitions at these companies. So I'm really intrigued as to what insight that allowed you into the unique challenges of making SaaS deals successfully. I, I found SaaS deals to be very hard. As a young company, you start with the predisposition that we cannot support multiple stacks. So you, and, and that was our experience at Salesforce. In all cases, we, we wouldn't and couldn't afford anything that we wouldn't rewrite or fully integrate with our core infrastructure stack. And, 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 and you find that that's a very hard rule and really limits the types of deals you can do. And then you go up and you decide to loosen up a little bit and you say, okay, 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 let's, let's, you know, we're missing out on opportunities. It's really hard to just integrate everything into a core stack. Let's just keep a few things independent. And, and you do that a few times and you realize a year or two later, holy crap, we have become a Frankenstein. We have five or six or seven, you know, infrastructure stacks. There's no way we can bring those two things together. It's extremely inefficient and, and things start to break down. People start to leave knowledge leaks out of the organization. And you get in a lot of trouble. And we always struggled with that. We struggled on growing the top line. We struggled on, in, in, in at every company I worked at, we struggled on integrating these things. We struggled on getting cost out of, or making these things more efficient, these companies. You know, upon reflection, it, it occurred to me that's just part of SaaS. That is the downside of SaaS is that, 
you are now responsible for the entire stack of the application, uh, what makes SaaS so attractive to your customers, which are accountability, ease of use, the delivery model, the lower switching cost, the lower adoption cost, all of those things have on the opposite side, on the vendor side, those are all the costs that you need to incur uh, as a SaaS vendor, which makes doing M&A in the SaaS world at scale a really hard thing to do on a very repeatable basis. Um, you can you can only afford to do it so many times. And certainly uh, the, the world where an incumbent vendor, one of the larger vendors, is just going to roll up 20 or 30 assets, 20 or 30 companies uh, within a few years. It's just, it, it's, it's unrealistic in the SaaS world. You mentioned that you're, you're altering investment strategy away from necessarily technologies that could be integrated into the core stack. So how have you seen your then personal investment decision-making change over time now with Salesforce, with Box, and now with August? The, the one thing I need to keep in mind you don't want to be making investment decisions with an M&A outcome in mind. I don't want to be investing in company A or B because I think they may be acquired by, they may be an attractive acquisition by any, any, any company. Uh, that, that usually gets you in trouble in my view. Having said that, there are certain ecosystems where I think you are very limited in your exit options. There are certain ecosystems that I would probably, I probably don't want to be very specific here because I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers, but there are certain ecosystems where you know there are no buyers, you know the space is not big enough to enable a company to reach public company scale. I will probably try to stay away from these types of investments where uh, I think the market is too small or too crowded to allow uh, a company to escape uh, and, and become a public company. Uh, the nature of the of the space limits your, your exit options. So I'll, I'll probably consider it but I want to emphasize how a company may exit is probably not going to be one of the top 10 things I'll consider in making an investment. Uh, it may just help me stay away from uh, from trouble. And you, meant, you mentioned some of the challenges earlier of M&A in, in SaaS. And, and, and so I'm intrigued here as a customer success lover, how, how cut the role of customer success affects the M&A environment and how the kind of transition from, from the hands of uh, the vendor to the customer has altered the M&A environment. And that is, is, is one of the key, I think, challenges, uh, in doing SaaS M&A. It used to be that you would acquire one of those application companies and the actual owner of the company made little difference. At the end of the day, you're selling a CD. Uh, the customer needs to deploy the application, customize it, integrate it, drive adoption within the organization to make it successful. So the actual owner, when, when, when uh, the example I gave was Oracle, when Oracle would acquire PeopleSoft, to the end customer, it didn't matter whether they're buying the application, the CD from Oracle, from PeopleSoft, they still had to do all the work. In the SaaS world, that's the exact opposite. Everything has flipped in that when you know a customer buys an application, they're absolutely looking at the software vendor to make them successful, to build an application that suits their needs, to maintain it, to continue to invest in it, 
to continue to enhance it, to continue to integrate it with other products and services offered by the vendor. And so the customer is always looking at you, the vendor, to make sure that you're doing everything you can to make them successful. And by the way, the customer success space as an industry, the gain sides of the world, emerged precisely because the SaaS vendors have the ability now to look into how a customer is adopting their application and put motions in place to make sure they're successful in using the application to prevent a future churn. In that world, if you're going to acquire that asset, it's really hard to take cost out. You're not going to cut R&D. You still need to continue to support these customers. And then on the sales side, um, you can't leverage a distribution channel usually, typically in enterprise software. Uh, software needs to be sold. You know, I'm not sure there's enough margin there to be shared with distributors because you need to support the customer. There's a lot more cost in supporting that customer than in the traditional on-premise world. And so distribution strategies don't, reseller channels typically don't work. You need to go direct. You need to incur the, the, the cost of selling. Uh, the application, you need to incur the cost of supporting the application, and you need to continue to invest in it. So in that world, I think it's just uh, the, the bar for making an M&A transaction in SaaS successful is just much higher. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to discuss uh, the multiples then and the distortion between multiples of private SaaS companies compared to the public SaaS companies. So what do you make of this mass distortion? Do you think it's uh, a fair realism of, of the environment that we live in? Or do you think it's something that fundamentally needs changing and, and why? This is a very loaded question. I, I have a lot of thoughts. I think, first of all, the media can do a much better job when when reporting funding rounds and valuations. They take these numbers at value. They're often misreported. Oftentimes, large rounds are reported as primary capital when, in fact, the majority of the round uh, is secondary capital. So people just come up to the wrong conclusion looking at these funding rounds. Valuations, a lot of people have pointed this out, but the valuation at which uh, you do uh, an, an, an investment as, as a venture investor. It does not mean the company is, is that that's the actual value of the company. Venture investors have uh, a buying uh, have, have preferences, and and those preferences really limit, uh, in many cases, the exposure, the downside. Uh, for that investor. So the difference between the value of the company in terms of common shares and the, the value of the preferred shares is oftentimes extremely uh, divergent and different. So I think people just need to do a better job reporting on these differences and, and just reminding people that pre and post money valuation in venture round is very different than the value of the company uh, of what a strategic or public investor may pay for it. So, so that's, that's, that's one thought. I think another thought is that clearly there's scarcity of assets and, and a lot of people are chasing these high-performing unique companies that, that, that are hard to find. Uh, and, and that drives uh, returns down, valuations up. Uh, I think a lot of people are trying to build franchises. 
by making sure that they participate in relevant transactions in, in their space. And so you have uh, some logo chasing that is happening. Uh, I think some investors, especially in Silicon Valley, I wouldn't say this about public investors, are not as sophisticated in how they value these companies. I think we throw revenue multiples around uh, all the time. And most people really don't understand what these revenue multiples mean. And people forget that revenue multiples are a derivative of a bunch of other factors. Uh, they're a derivative of the quality of revenue. They're a derivative of the gross margins. They're a derivative of your growth rate. Bill Gurley wrote a great blog post on this. I would suggest everybody go uh, read it. I just don't think many uh, investors still really understand how to value these assets, uh, which leads to uh, valuations that sometimes uh, don't make sense. And then I want to dive into a 60-second SASTA. So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. Sound good? Sure. So LinkedIn, the recent acquisition, what are your thoughts? I love the company. I have loved the company for a long time. I have been very frustrated in my love for the company because I think they have been the most underachieving company in the Valley. They've had such tremendous opportunity. And I think they've been caught between a consumer and an enterprise company, and they haven't figured out what they are and how to make that transition. So in some ways, honestly, I've been, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that they sold the company uh, before uh, they, 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 truly reached out the potential of the company and, and made a very successful transition to becoming a huge enterprise business. And so I'm, I'm a bit disappointed, unfortunately. Uh, I made some money on it. I was an investor in the company, uh, personally, a little bit. I was just, you know, so I'm happy I made a little bit of money, but I'm kind of disappointed that they never really showed me what they're capable of. And then what's your biggest advice to early stage SaaS founders? Biggest advice, honestly, is try to get customers to pay you for what you are offering. SaaS founders are often too eager to buy some logos, don't really ask their customers to pay. And so they rely on venture funding to finance their growth. And I think oftentimes they are not asking their customers to pay for it. And by asking your customers to pay for it, uh, there's a lot to be learned there. Uh, it's easy to get a customer to adopt an application when you're undercharging for it, but, you know, but you're not getting the feedback that you really need. And it's also not informing the proper sales motion for that product. So my advice is build a great product and go ask a customer to pay a lot of money for it. And then I want to finish then today, moving away from the quick fire, on discussing kind of what's next in the future of the M&A environment and what we will see. So will we see an upturn in M&A first in, in SaaS, do you think? We will continue to see what we've seen over the last five or 10 years, which is we're going to see lots of small uh, acquisitions by incumbents to acquire talent, fill product gaps, things that are easy to integrate, things that are low calorie uh, for, for acquirers. And on the other extreme, we're going to continue to see the trend that started last week or two weeks ago with the leaders in the space getting acquired, the link, uh, the the well, the LinkedIn's, the Marketos, the Demandwares. I wouldn't be surprised if you know we see Tableau or 
some other, you know, uh, another large vendor get acquired in the next few weeks, mostly because those types of acquisitions make sense. Uh, it makes sense for SAP to invest the time, the resources, the hard work that is warranted in making one of those SaaS deals successful. Uh, successful if you uh, when you're doing it at scale. So I think what we're not going to see a lot of is all of those twenty to fifty to a hundred million dollar SaaS revenue companies uh, getting rolled up. I think my view is a new class of investor is going to emerge that figures out how to profit from running or, or consolidating many of these assets. And then talking of the IPO market, well, what will happen to SaaS companies who do reach hundred million in revenue? Will they IPO? And do you expect to see uh, a kind of frothy and, and, and positive IPO market? I think the IPO market is there. It's rarely, if ever, the case that the IPO market is shut. And I often chuckle when I see that read or when people say that the IPO market is currently shut. It's not shut. It's just the valuations people are seeing and getting are not what they like, what they like to hear. But that's that's reality. I would argue public investors are much more thoughtful in many ways about valuation and what's reasonable for a certain asset. And I think that is what causes these swings in value in, in the number of companies going public. Over the last two or three years, late-stage companies have gotten financed at very high valuations. Think a company like DocuSign, which raised around a $3 billion valuation last time around. You know, you can bet there's debate at the board now where early investors are saying, we should take this thing public. And the people, the investors that invested at $3 billion at the last round are saying, no, 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 no. That would imply that I'll have to convert, I have to take a loss. I am not willing to do that. I think that is causing companies, good companies, great companies like DocuSign to sit on the sideline and not go public. And so that's my view on the IPO market. I think the IPO market is a gate on or or, or rather keeps private investors in check on the valuation side of things and and make uh, make sure that we are uh, we make uh, rational, reasonable decisions. Last question. And I'm really intrigued to hear what you think will happen to application software over the next 10 to 15 year timeline. That's a really good question. I, I have this very simple uh, thesis, which is if you look at what we accomplished over the last 15 years, which is rather remarkable, is we basically put application software to the cloud. Uh, and in doing so, we made it available to organizations of all sizes. But the software itself didn't really materially change. We made it more available. We made it easier to use. Yes, it's, you know, we analytics and big data and all these things are now, uh, something that uh, everybody can take advantage of, but the software itself didn't really change. An ERP system is still an ERP system. An inventory management system, it mostly does the same things that it did 15 years ago. So I think what happens over the next 15 years is the software itself will finally get smarter. It will finally start to make us better at what we do. And so my investment thesis, the lens through which I view investment opportunities in software is how does this application make the user smarter? How does it make them better, more productive, uh, more successful at their day-to-day job? And I think 
that level of intelligence will start to be part of every application. A staffing application will not just allow you to schedule people. It will plug into your point of sale and tell you what is the optimal staffing uh, level you should have to maximize both uh, to maximize revenue and minimize cost. A CRM application will score the opportunities for you and help you find the right messaging for the customer. It will just make you better at everything you do. So I think intelligent software will finally get more intelligent and make us better. And that's my view for the next 15 years. Well, Vili, I know one thing for sure, and that's by speaking to you, I've certainly got more intelligent today. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I'd like to give a huge hand to Vili for giving up his time today to be on the show and also a special thank you to Jason for making the intro and making the show happen today. Also, if you'd like to see more from the world of Sasta, then head over to Sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com or you can follow me on Snapchat at H Stebbings or Jason Lampkin on Twitter at Jason LK. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. I really do so appreciate all your support and I look very forward to bringing you Monday's episode.